Hi, welcome to our podcast. To learn more about Liverpool One Church, join us live, give financially and to get involved, head to liverpoolonechurch.com. We believe God wants to do great things in and through your life today. Enjoy this message. So, um, I don't know about you, but I'm going to let you in on a little bit of a secret that I shared with some of our guys just last Saturday at our first ever men's hustle event, which was just incredible. We all just had breakfast together and we were just talking life and talking the reality of what it's like being a real man, earnestly trying to follow Christ and yet deal with all the tensions that just exist in all of our worlds. And I happened to share with them a story, so they've already had the inside line on this, but I'm gonna share the story with you, church, the wider family today. And that's actually just around a particular piece of conflict that has been in existence in our house for approximately two weeks now. Because I don't know what it's like for you guys, but I'll tell you what I'm like. I reckon that most of the time I'm pretty balanced. I'm pretty level-headed. It doesn't take a lot to move me emotionally. I'm kind of like on an even keel. But, but when I get hungry, I just become like this different guy. And sometimes I say things that I don't really mean. And sometimes I respond in ways and means that really I shouldn't respond. And I remember about two weeks ago, I'd gotten in late from work and it's about half past nine and I was starving. And actually, I was regretting giving immensely not having driven through the drive-thru at McDonald's on the way home, you know. I was absolutely famished. Now, listen, I'm going to tell you a secret about me, but I need you to promise me not to do one thing. I'm going to tell you about one of my favourite snacks, but, but the deal is, is I'll tell you what it is, but you're not allowed to buy me them. And the reason being is because a lot of the boys have found it hilarious since I've shared this story last weekend is they are bringing my favourite snack and they're leaving it on my wall of my house. I turn up at church today and some, some idiot has purchased me one of my favourite snacks, right? And my favourite snack happens to be a dark chocolate digestive biscuit. I mean, like, forget the milk chocolate. It has to be dark chocolate. Yes, where are all my dark chocolate brothers out there. It's like, that's the real snack of a real man right there. And I got in and I was absolutely starving. And you know, like when you're really starving, you don't fancy anything healthy, do you? You just like, you're rummaging through the cupboards, like, where are the snacks? And we've now got a biscuit tin and I'm like going through this thing and there are no dark chocolate digestive biscuits. And I'm like banging around the kitchen and I'm hungry and I'm saying to Emma, you know, there's nothing to eat. And Emma's like, no, there's plenty to eat. Like, just have a look in the freezer. And really what I was meaning when I was saying like there's nothing to eat, I was particularly meaning there are no dark digestive chocolate biscuits. And that's an issue to me. And she's like going, well, find something else. Have something else. Do you want me to make you something? And I'm like, no, like wh- where are all the biscuits gone? I don't understand. And she's like, well, you're the only one in this house that likes those biscuits. You have eaten them all. And I'm going like, there's no way I've eaten them all. Someone else has eaten these biscuits. And she's like, look, you have eaten them all. And I'm like, eating them all? The thing was full the other day. Like, have we not got any more? I don't understand how we could run out so quick. And then just under my breath, in the full knowledge that Emma is the one that does the food shop in our house. I happen to have a thought that came out of my mouth that I thought was maybe under my breath, but in reality was approximately 75 decibels. And what I said to her was, seriously, you've only got one job. Meaning like, you've only got one job in the whole world, and that is to make sure that our biscuit tin is stocked up with dark 
chocolate digestive biscuits. And literally, as I said that to her, you've only got one job. She puts her bags down and she says to me, what did you just say? And then I, as confident as brass, I said, oh my God, oh I said, hey, listen, hon, I said, like, you know, I'm starving, you know, it's a thing. You, you haven't filled up the biscuit tin. I am, I am dying here. And she's like, okay, next. Emma flings open the freezer. She's pulling out the drawers. She's like, you see this? The thing is full. Next, the fridge. You see this? The thing is full. She's going through the cupboards. She's opening the top cupboards. She's like, there is food all over this kitchen. But now, because I haven't purchased enough dark chocolate digestive biscuits, you are accusing me now of not doing my one job correctly. And I'm like, yeah, that's exact, that is exactly what I'm accusing you of. So I'm just saying that now what started to happen in our house is that every single time that Emma does anything, she's chosen to let me know that she's just doing her one job. In fact, if you were to go through my phone, you would see numerous text messages that are just like this. This is Emma out shopping last weekend, and um, that's a picture of her trolley, and her bottom line says, just doing my one and only job. Like literally, that is what my life looks like right now. And I'm still on the back end of trying to pedal my way out of it, because the reality of it is, is that in my marriage, I'm sure it's very unlike yours, but in my marriage, sometimes there can just be some conflict. Now, I'm sure that you've got the perfect marriage. I'm sure that you've never accused your wife of not proficiently doing her one job well enough. I'm sure that you've never allowed a thought that you thought would remain to yourself spill out of you. I'm sure that you have the perfect marriage. So maybe you're not used to any kind of conflict in your marriage, but chances are you know exactly what it's like to have to deal with conflict, perhaps around the canteen table in work. When somebody says something to you that's maybe offensive or it embarrasses, you or it's interpreted by you as meaning something that maybe they didn't really mean it to mean and now there is this tension and now it feels like there is conflict. You know what it's like to have to deal with conflict because there are people in your lives. And for others, it might not be the marriage and it might not be the canteen in the office. But for others of you, you know what it's like to deal with conflict in the family. Like when you're seated around the dining room table on a Friday evening, like everything just gets so tense so quickly. And everybody's got a different thing, a different agenda, a different thought about some kind of situation that's happening somewhere in the world. And before you know it, there is all of this conflict. And what makes conflict difficult to deal with in the family and in our relationships? and in our workplaces, at Christmas time, it feels like this can now become the epicentre of our entire conflicting seasons of the year because all of a sudden now, you're going to be introduced to family that you haven't even seen for the past year. There are friends that are going to come knocking on your door and you're going to go knocking on theirs that maybe you've just not had any close proximity to and it can just feel a little bit awkward, a little bit weird, a little bit distant and around Christmas, there are all of these new and different people whose lives lives you're bumping into, that the tension exists, that there could be a chance of conflict. And then you remember that it's Christmas and you realise, well, somebody's got to have crazy Uncle Kenny and you had him last year and now somebody else should have him this year. I mean, the conflict just exists and the chances of there being high levels of drama in your life and in mine, especially around this Christmas season, as everybody's pushed on the bills and everybody's pushed on time, is really high. 
And the reality of it is, is that at Christmas, this works out in so many different ways. Because you've got so many different thoughts, so many different opinions, so many people have different agendas. I mean, at Christmas time, are we doing gifts for everyone or are we just doing gifts for the kids? Because I'm really happy just to do gifts for all the family's kids, but I'm not doing that if you stitch me up like last year. When we agreed, we were only giving to the kids and you turned up with a family gift as well. We didn't agree the family gift. We just agreed that we were buying for children. That's a source of tension that can exist in all of our lives. For others, it's a bit like, well, okay then, who's going to whose house for Christmas Day? Are we going to your parents or are we going to my parents? Where did we go last year? Did they come to us or did they come to us? And all of a sudden, there's these conversations that become tension-filled and conflict is just on the horizon. And if we are going to their house for dinner this year, is your cousin going to be there? Because your cousin hates me. And no matter what we do and no matter what we say, she doesn't like me, he thinks this about me. And there is all this little small, simmering pockets of tension or are they all coming to us and if everyone's coming to us are we paying for everybody or is anybody going to bring a dessert is anybody else going to bring some drink I mean the reality of it is is around Christmas the chances are high that conflict can be just around the corner and at Christmas there are so many different layers of potential conflict that are just simmering away in the background except sometimes the simmering stops and the thing explodes. And you know about this, because last year, when you said that thing to your mum, man, it upset her, she started crying, and she ran out, and you know, the wheel fell off. Like last year, when you said that thing to your dad, it made him so angry, and he got so aggressive, and you were like, where is all this hostility coming from? Because you know, sometimes the conflict, it doesn't just simmer, but it boils over. Last year, or in the run-up to this year, you've already had the conversation with your teenage son, and now he hasn't even spoken to you for six weeks. And it just feels like there's just all these different potential pockets of tension and conflict. So I guess that in light of the potential for conflict being higher than ordinary at this time of the year, I just wonder, is there a way that we can all live life with a little less conflict this Christmas? In fact, can you imagine what your family would look like this year if there was just a little less conflict? When it comes to conflict, it's actually something that Jesus is very intentional about speaking very specifically and directly into. In fact, he doesn't even just talk about it once. And in fact, it's kind of annoying sometimes because what we like to say here at church is we're followers of the red text. And that's because in many of our Bibles, when you open up the gospel accounts, you can see the words of Jesus and they're in bright red ink. And we want to be implementers of that red text. But the reality of it is, is that when Jesus speaks, in the gospel accounts, when he's given instructions and guidance and direction, I guess that you've got a choice. And the choice is you can either be a follower of a red text or you can choose not to be a follower of the red text. In fact, what I would say is like this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then everything that we're gonna talk about today, you get off completely scot-free. Like you don't have to do any of this. Like if you're not a Christian, you can be in church today. You can enjoy the worship. You can hear all of this talk and presentation. I would actively encourage you to implement it in your life because I think it will make your life better and you better at life. But the reality of it is, is you just don't have to do anything. But 
if you are a follower of Jesus, like if you're a Christian, then what we're going to look at today, I'm afraid it just isn't optional. It's instructional. In fact, we're going to be jumping into a piece of text that Jesus makes it so clear about the reality that actions speak louder than words. But Jesus takes it a step further. And what he points out is reactions and your response to people and conflict speaks way louder than them both. In fact, the reality of it is, is that the way that we react or respond to conflict or to aggression or to someone's jibing at us or to somebody who's trying to embarrass us or to somebody that's trying to get one up us, the way that we respond and we react, actually, it really determines the direction and the duration of the conflict that we are currently in. The way in which we respond changes everything. Because think about it like this. Would there be more or less conflict in your life if when faced with conflict, rather than getting all angry and aggressive, you chose to remain calm and say, well, I see your point, but it's just not how I see things. What would your look like? Would there be more aggression and more turbulence and more tension when conflict arises if instead of being accusatory about how dare they believe that thing about you, you said, well, listen, maybe you've just misunderstood what I've said. My question is, is would there be more conflict or less conflict dependent on the way that you respond and the way that you react to the times and seasons that there is conflict in your life? Because the reality of it is, is that we all know this, that conflict works out way better for us all when we respond in a better way. So is this even possible? Well, I'm not actually convinced, but we will go and take a look at what Jesus said. Because Jesus knew that dealing with conflict and tension would be an immense problem for us all. And I think that he knew this because he was speaking 2,000 years ago into an exact same kind of issue that we still face and deal with today. People. And he gave us clear instruction 2,000 years ago in the fullness of the knowledge that there will be times that people will respond and deal with you in a manner that is unfair, unkind, and unreasonable. And I think that what Jesus was trying to do was say, listen, there are going to be people that deal with you in an unfair, unkind, unreasonable manner. So when they do, not if they do, but when they do, behave and respond to them like this. Because everybody knows the way in which we respond, it causes people to stop and stare. The way in which you react to something or someone, it causes people to stop and stare. Think about it like this. Have you ever been in a busy supermarket and there is like some crazy parent that is just going absolutely ballistic at one of his kids, typically like a young boy that's decided to put a great big toy into the trolley that mum and dad had no clue about and he snuck it in there and they're at the checkout and now they realise it's in there and then the dad just starts going absolutely crazy at his little boy. Like we all know because people's reactions and the way in which people respond, it's kind of like it causes everybody else around them to stop and stare, especially when you overreact. But then there's another type of reaction that also causes people to stop and stare. And that's when you underreact. That's when actually you should be hitting the roof, but instead you remain calm. That's when you should be dishing out all of the expletives, but instead you remain constant and steadfast. And you respond in a way that is peaceable and loving. Because the reality of it is the way in which you respond to people that are unfair, unkind and unreasonable to you, I think as far as Jesus would see it, 
would actually be an opportunity for you to reflect your Father in heaven. Why? Well, think about it. How has your Father in heaven responded to you and your sin and your mess and your brokenness? He said, hey, welcome home, buddy. So Jesus starts to speak into this issue in Matthew 5, and this is what he says. You have heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. So right now, he's just acknowledging that this is the common theme of the day. He's just acknowledging that typically, this is how everybody approaches life. But he goes on and he doesn't leave it there. But he says, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Hold on a second. The way in which we respond determines whether we become children of our Father in heaven. Why would he even say that? Well, it kind of makes sense to me when you think about, have you ever seen a small child and the way in which they imitate mom or dad? I think that that's exactly what Jesus was encouraging us to do. He was saying, look, I understand this is completely counter-cultural, but what I want you to do is to reflect to those around you the way in which God has been towards you. So he's been kind and compassionate and welcoming and gracious. And I want you, even in the times when people are being unfair, unkind and unreasonable, I want you to respond in a way that represents and mirrors the Father heart of God accurately. He's saying, look, this is the epicentre of what it's actually like to be a follower of mine. That's why I say choosing to implement this is not optional if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus person, if you're a Jesus follower. You don't get to plug and play with this. This is not optional. He's saying the command is you've got to love your enemies. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road because chances are if you're anything like me, if I was sat in your seat right now, I would be thinking about me, well, it's okay that you give this kind of a teaching in church because I can see how it might work out well in your life. You're a pastor of a church. You work with people who also say they follow Jesus. You're in the ministry, so you're around a lot of Christian people all of the time. I can see how this might work for you, but there is no way this is ever going to work in the factory that I work in. There is no way that this would ever work in the school where I'm a teacher. There is no way that this would ever be able to be implemented in the boardroom where I spend most of my week. Well, hey, listen, let me tell you this. I think that that exact same thought that you're having right now was the exact same thought of the early followers and listeners to Jesus who, who were there, sat amongst him and around him when he was giving this teaching. They felt the same way too. And do you know how I know that? Because in the New Testament, <laughs> check this out, there is not one scrap of evidence that shows clearly that anybody ever followed this teaching or implemented it. Actually, it's not recorded anywhere. And when you think about it like this, this time that Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you guys should love your enemies. It wasn't like, you know, he only ever said that once because the chances are really high. Like this was one of his core messages. Like this was in his folder, in his satchel. So whenever he would travel from town to town, he would give these talks, he would give these presentations. And I think the love your enemy presentation would have been right up there all the time. So even his disciples that were traveling everywhere, he went with them. Even they didn't implement this teaching that 
Jesus gave them. And I think that we're probably not all that different to them. I mean, it's true. There's not a scrap of evidence. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary. Because if we think about what happens in Luke 9, and we're not going to go there right now, but in Luke 9, there is this strange passage of Scripture where Jesus is saying, hey guys, this is what we're going to do. We're all going to be heading to Jerusalem, but hey, listen, I want there to be a small team that goes ahead of us. And because we're going to be passing through Samaria, what I want you to do is stop off in Samaria, let them know that we're en route to Jerusalem, and I want you to take care of all of the arrangements, like get us a hotel, arrange us a meal at a nice restaurant, make sure there's somewhere we can water and feed our animals. Like you take care of everything in Samaria. And the story goes that actually when that team arrives in Samaria, they were hostile towards that team. When they heard and found out that Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem, they were hostile towards Jesus. And this angered the disciples. So remember, these same disciples who were sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus say, you've heard it said that you should love those that love you, but I want you to love your enemies. These same disciples now in Luke 9 verse 54 are the same disciples that do this. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, meaning saw their hostility towards them, they asked, Lord, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Like, Jesus must have been like, guys, what are you talking about? Like, what happened to the love your enemy message? What happened to that talk? Like, did you, did you not take notes? Like, what happened? And they're like, Jesus, you want us to get them? Like, they don't even like you. They don't even like us. You want us to do them in, Jesus? Should we go get them? Should we call down fire from heaven? I mean, these guys knew what it was like to not be able to follow the teachings of Jesus. Or actually, what about when we think about the story that's found in John 18? And we're not going to go here, but in John 18, it's the occasion that's taking place where Jesus is about to be arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Scriptures tell us that a small army are sent to arrest Jesus. Why a small army? Because they're expecting trouble. They're expecting Jesus to respond and react in some kind of aggressive way. And why would he not? For he's done nothing wrong. But when they arrive and they speak with Jesus, guess what we find? We find that Jesus responds in a way that nobody else would have responded. Jesus is calm and collective and he understands it's the will of his father. And he understands that he's been going around teaching, love your enemies. And here, now, right in front of him, are his enemies. But Peter, on the other hand, forget the love your enemies talk. He pulls out a sword, swipes at a soldier and cuts off his ear. I mean, Jesus must have been like, Peter, how many times do I have to tell... Calm down, dear. Have you not heard the love your enemy message, the love your enemy talk? The reality of it is, is even they found this incredibly hard to implement and to follow. Just like some of us are going to find this incredibly hard to implement and to follow. So much so that the Apostle Paul starts to talk about the same idea that Jesus has already introduced to us. Jesus has told us that it's our job to reflect the Father heart of God by loving our enemies. But Paul, in the book of Romans, he starts to be able to flesh that out for us and gives us a bit of a picture of exactly how this can practically work for us all today. So that's what I want us to try now and delve deep into and look at so that this year, the life that you experience just has a little less conflict within it. So let's go to Romans 12, verse 17 
through to 21. It says this, Paul speaking, he says, never pay back evil with more evil. Let's just pause there for a moment. So Paul, again, he's acknowledging that actually paying back evil with evil is the correct cultural thing to do. But what he's saying is now as a follower of Jesus, we're gonna live our life in a way that is completely countercultural. We're not gonna do the same thing as everybody else. Even though you might have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, if somebody does wrong for you, then you go get them back. If somebody says something that embarrasses you, then you go embarrass the hell out of them. If somebody says something that's offensive to you, then you make sure that you pay them back. Well, now Paul is saying, actually, it shouldn't work like that at all. Never pay back evil with more evil. It's not the right way to go about living a Christ-honouring life. He goes on and he says this, do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honourable. I think now what Paul is inferring is the same thing that Jesus was trying to infer. He was saying the way that you react when people are unkind and unreasonable and maybe even speak untruthful things about you, the way in which you respond, I want you to be able to react and respond in a way that's gonna be honourable so that people in your workplace, so that people in your college, so that people in your university would know there is something different about you and that you are an honourable man, you are an honourable woman, that you are an honourable person and in doing so, you reflect the nature of God. And then he goes on in verse 18 and he says, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Another translation puts it like this, as much as it is down to you. Almost like if it's within your control, even if it's not what you wanna do, even if it's not what you'd like to do, even if holding your tongue feels like the most crazy thing for you to do, if it's possible, do it if it means that you get to live peaceably with everybody else around your dining room table this Christmas. Then do it if it means that you get to remain living in peace with everybody else who gathers around your canteen table at work. Then do it if it means in the office party this year, you get to be peaceable with everybody else that is there. He was saying, look, to those that treat you in an unfair, unkind, unreasonable way, I want your response to be Honourable. Now again, this is where it gets tough. Because if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can look at this and say, well, this is nice, but I'm not gonna do that. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this isn't like advice that you get to just plug and play the bits that you like. This is Paul. It's just as instructional as Jesus saying, love your enemies. He was saying, this is the way to a better, more healthy, more balanced, less conflict-ridden life. This is the way. So do all that you can to live in peace with everybody, even those that are unfair, unkind, and unreasonable. Now verse 19, he says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. In other words, he's saying, you know, in those times when you feel like you need to say your peace, you know, in those times when you feel like you need to put them right, in that moment where you need to argue out your point, Paul's saying, well, how's that working out for you? Because your history would say every time you've done that, it's kind of gone a bit crazy. So why not try a different tactic? Why not try to choose 
and believe that actually God's got your back? Why not try and choose to believe that God will fight your corner for you rather than you fighting every person around you? Don't repay evil with evil. Don't do that. Leave it up to God. It's not your responsibility. It's God that holds your world in the palm of your hand and he looks down on you and he knows the intricacies and the details of every area of your life. And now we get to it. Now he's given us options. Now he says, instead, in other words, look, you're not going to like what's coming next. I'm just letting you all know. This is the bit that you're going to walk out going, I wish that was not in the Bible. But now Paul's telling us, instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. And now this is the key verse. In verse 21, he says, Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. In other words, he was saying, when you choose to respond and react in a way that's aggressive, where you get to get everything off your chest and it makes you feel amazing for all of two minutes, when you do that, you're allowing evil to get the better of you. And as a follower of Jesus, it's just not how we're called to live anymore. There is a different way. There is a different path for us to be able to walk on. And he was saying, look, I just want to spell this out really clear to you. I just want to leave no stone unturned because I want you to know that if you don't handle the times and seasons that somebody treats you in an unfair, unkind or unreasonable manner, then every single time that you respond badly, you're allowing evil to infiltrate your life. In fact, I'd put it like this, for as much as you think during the times and seasons when someone has maybe been unfair, unkind or unreasonable to you, or maybe they've been unfair, unkind, unreasonable to one of your loved ones, and now you think I'm gonna plan to get them back. I want you to know it does no damage to them. It doesn't harm them at all. But every night when you go to sleep bitter and twisted, refusing to let it go and refusing not to respond to them in the way that your father has responded to you, it eats you up. And do you know what that is? That's evil, getting the better of you for as much as you hope that if you just withhold your words and withhold your smile, when they walk in the room, I'm gonna give them the daggers from the other side and I'll let them know. And for as much as you want it to be the case that they know that you're angry with them, I want you to know what Paul is saying. That's how evil gets into your life. You're being conquered by evil every time that you choose. Instead of choosing a path of love and peace and kindness, that you're just gonna give someone the silent treatment. Like, yeah, I'm not speaking to them now. That's They're written off in my world as far as I'm concerned. I'm just going to leave them to be an island because I want nothing to do with them. Paul was saying, look, guys, you don't understand. When you do that, evil is conquering you. You're allowing evil to get the better of you. And now my question against Paul's text is, well, what good does evil conquering you do for you? Nothing. In fact, If we really get down to it, the way that you react and you respond to people that are unfair and unkind and unreasonable in your life, if you think about it like this, the way that you react when the times when you start crying and you get so emotional that you have to run out of the room, the times that you get so angry and in a just aggression and you feel like you want to smash something up, the times when you feel like, man, I'm just going to let my lips go and you're just going to call them every name under the sun. 
the time when you feel like you've got to go on the offensive, do you know what that's actually, do you know what's actually happening there when you're responding like that? You're responding in a way that deep down is you saying, I don't believe God is in control. When you respond and you react like that, you're actually saying, I don't think God is the one that orchestrates the strings of my life. I don't think that He is the one that's able to move pieces and people into place at just the right time in my life, just when I need it. It's almost like we know of scriptures that tell us, that encourage us, you know, hey, the bottom line is, is that all you've got to do is believe that God can work out all things for the good for those that love them. But every time that you react and you respond and you're the kickoff merchant or you're the high drama person, do you know that you're responding in a way that shows that you don't believe that at all? And Paul was trying to say to us, look, this is what I want you to do. And this is the one thing that I want you to remember. For this season, can you imagine a life with just a little less conflict? Well, I can imagine that if you do this one thing that Paul was encouraging us to do. He would encourage us to respond responsibly. In the times and the seasons when someone's being unfair, unkind and unreasonable, respond responsibly. That means not responding how everybody else would respond. It doesn't even mean responding in a way that's reasonable because often what is reasonable is doing the thing that everybody else would do. Don't do that. Paul would say, respond responsibly. So what is it to respond responsibly? Well, it all is determined by whether or not you're a follower of Jesus. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, to respond responsibly would mean to love your enemies. To respond responsibly, it would mean to hold your tongue. Why? Because you have been entrusted with the responsibility of demonstrating like a mirror image to those in your world exactly what the Father heart of God is really like. You have been charged with demonstrating what the very character of God is like. And when will people see it most? When you respond to the people that are unfair and unkind and unreasonable. So this Christmas, I can imagine it. I can see it. I think it's possible if we just respond in a responsible way, knowing I'm firstly responsible to our Father in heaven. Church, why don't we stand to our feet? We're gonna pray. We're gonna ask us all just to close our eyes and uh, bow our heads real quick. Let me pray for you all. Heavenly Father, when we talk about conflict and we talk about tension, we know that this is so real because it affects us all in varying ways. And God, some of us were able to stay calm and we're able to just instinctively react in a way that is a little less aggressive. But for some of us, sometimes we say things that we don't mean. Sometimes we react in a way that doesn't represent you well. So what we're all asking as a church family is that as we approach Christmas this year, and as we approach this season with friends and with family, of different thoughts, different political views, different takes on world events, different life placement, different backgrounds, different contexts. Would you help us to live out this text and respond responsibly? Help us to respond in a way that sees our lives become like that of a mirror that simply reflects your character and your grace and your kindness and your patience 
that you've had with us to them. And we ask this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. With every eye still closed and every head still bowed, hey, listen, if you're in church today and you just never made a decision to follow Jesus right now, it's just going to be your moment. It's your time to say, you know what? I want to, I want to become a Christian today. I want to give my life to Christ. I want to be a follower of His. And if you've never made that decision, then as I say this prayer right now, I want you to repeat this prayer in your heart after me whilst no one else is looking around, no one else is interested in what's going on with you because everyone's thinking the same thing. Where do I stand right now with God? And if you want to get right with God, right now respond by saying this prayer in your heart after me. Father in heaven, I come to you today and I believe that you're real. I believe that you gave your one and only son Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for me. So I'm asking you to live in my life today because I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong. And now I'm asking for forgiveness of my sin for I'm choosing to be a follower of you. And from this point on, I'm calling myself a Christian. Amen.